Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Andrew Woodhouse, who's the CIO at Real VNC, and Mario Heidrich, or Heidrich. Mario, how do I pronounce your last name? It's going to be Heidrich, but with Heidrich, you're already pretty good, so don't worry about easy, it. Easy for you to say. So we're going to speak with Mario Heidrich, <laughs> yeah. who is the Cure 53 founder. Thank you for that, Mario. And we're going to be talking about how these two organizations work together to solve some interesting security problems using a white box audit and some other techniques. But before we do that, let's say hi to Andrew and Mario. How are you guys? Good, thanks. Quite fine. Thank you very much. How are you? Good, good. Hey, I normally just have one guest on at a time, so this is a <laughs> new experience for me. But uh, Andrew, where are you based? So I'm based about six miles out of Cambridge, UK. Okay, awesome. And so I have very similar weather to you typically right now. I'm in Seattle area, so it's uh, Oh, I've been cold. to Seattle, yeah. yeah. Somebody, when I went to Seattle a few years ago, somebody told me that you don't tan, you rust. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> we call it liquid sunshine. Yes, we have lots of it. And uh, and Mario, where are you at? I'm from Berlin in Germany. And uh, yeah, we also have like lots of rain, as you can imagine. Awesome. Hey, we got we all have something in common there. Before we get started, maybe, you know, Andrew, you can tell us a little bit about how Real VNC started working with Cure53. What's the relationship there? Sure. A couple of years ago, we we're always getting asked by our quest, by our customers. So we do remote access software security like it is for a lot of software, but I'd argue particularly for software like remote access software. Security is really important, right? Because if you have vulnerabilities or, or insecure code, it's not just that, say, a web server could get compromised, but it's a route directly bypassing the firewalls potentially onto the customer's network that could be leveraged. So when they're looking at remote access software, in the same way as customers do when they're looking at things like VPNs, security is generally at the top of their minds. And we were always getting asked questions by customers, is your software secure? Now, of course, we're going to say, yes, it's secure. But that doesn't necessarily mean a lot because nobody's going to say their software is insecure. So I thought, how can we prove to customers off our software is secure and that we don't have any glaring holes or we're not? just doing bad things. And the only way I could think we could do it was get an external organization to audit our code. And in terms of Y53, so I, I use Bitwarden as a password manager. And I know that when I was looking at using Bitwarden, obviously password managers also need to be very secure because of the, it's kind of all the eggs in one basket situation, right? If your password manager, as we saw with LastPass not long ago, if they get compromised, potentially it can be really nasty. So mm -hmm. I knew that Bitwarden had engaged Cure53 to do an audit and publish the report of that, which I really like because it meant they showed that they had nothing to hide and that they took security seriously and they were very transparent about it. So basically, because I knew Bitwarden had done it, I thought, okay, let's talk to Cure53 and see if it's something that they'd be interested in doing. And, you know, in... Mario will currently when it was, I think it was 2020, 
two, was it last year or the year before? I can't even remember. <laughs> I should know. Yeah, it was last year, as far as I can see. It was like in January and February and March 2022. And you reached out in 2021, but the actual assessment was done yeah. in early 2022. Yeah. So does that answer the question? Does that help, Mark? That helps. So, that helps. Yeah. Yes. And then and just to give it a little bit more color, Mario, maybe you can talk a little bit about exactly what Cure 53 security does. Yeah, it's actually quite simple. We do pen tests. And with pen tests, we basically refer to an umbrella term that includes vulnerability assessments and source code audits and cryptography reviews and infrastructure assessments. And we try to cover pretty much everything that is online, like be it like a regular website or a SaaS-based web application with a complex API in the background or like a desktop software, something based on Electron or server-side software or cloud-based stuff. So the idea is that we want to be able to cover everything that is like somehow relevant for the internet and exposed to users and customers and pretty much anyone out there. Great. Maybe can you explain, either of you, both of you, the differences between doing pen tests or vulnerability assessments against an organization versus testing to see whether the code is secure? Because I think they're two different issues. And obviously, if I'm going to do business with Real VNC, I want to make sure both that the organization is secure. But ultimately, if I'm a subscriber to, to your software or your service, I want to make sure that the code is secure. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'll let Mario go first, because I think my, my, my view on general pen tests like crest type pen tests in the uk that people do they tend to be just looking at the web app and often they're a checkbox exercise so often it's yes we do an annual pen test the pen testers themselves tend to run standard tools and have a playbook for what they're going to do and they tend to be black box i.e they don't know anything about the infrastructure they don't know how it's built they are just looking for common vulnerabilities that they're not really getting into the into the guts of how the application's working so that they can leverage any vulnerabilities because they just don't know what the code base is. So often it's it's the same as somebody running a port scan and then just doing the real, it's like a real basic test. And there are lots of people that do pen tests like black box pen tests. I think what we're talking about here is a white box, a white box audit or a white box pen test where Geo53 had access to our developers. They had access to all of our source code for the web application, the backend APIs, everything we do. And we're looking at that with the source code and asking developers sometimes difficult questions. I'm not going to lie and say it's always easy. And it, we, our developers had to spend some time working with Geo53. But what comes out of it is a much more in-depth analysis of the code and the protocol and the crypto than you could possibly get with a black box audit. Mario is a security expert, so I'll now let him give the right answer. I think it depends a little bit on the perspective of, on, on, on how you want to look at things. And it also depends a little bit on the role. So if you, for example, get tasked with a black box or like a gray box assessment, then the role that we usually slip into is the role of the external attacker with a certain level of information at hand. Black box means you're the external attacker with absolutely no information except for, hey, there's a target. Let's see what you can find out about that. And with gray box, you would get some assistance from the team that is ordering the test or potentially even maintaining the application that you're testing against. They would give you API documentation. They would give you credentials for test users of various kinds of roles, maybe even sometimes admin users. And they would just like generally assist you during the assessment. And that means that 
you're still testing from the perspective of the external attacker, but an informed one. And at the same time, you're compensating for the amount of time that a real attacker might want to invest versus the time box nature of the assessment that you're doing. For example, say, look, you're going to have 15 person days on that test. And that is enough because that's our budget. Then this means that if we might invest 16 days, then maybe on that 16th day, we're going to find something that we didn't find in the first 15 days. Is that probable? I don't know. Is that possible? Yes. And does the actual attacker care about the budget? Probably not as much as we do in that situation or the client does. So gray box gets us a little bit of an advantage over the actual attacker by pre-serving some information to us and making sure that we actually see things and don't have to guess them or determine them ourselves. And then of course, last but not least, you have the crystal box or the white box assessment in which all the information is there. And then you can think about, we're assuming two roles here. The first one would still be the role of the attacker because we're going to try to do bad stuff with that extra information. But the second one is also the role of the internal auditor because we don't have to ask, we don't have to guess, we don't have to probe, we don't have to brute force, and we can just look things up if we're uncertain about them. So if you, for example, run into a weird behavior of an application, we don't have to ask around who can explain this behavior because we can just check it out in the sources ourselves. So that makes us more efficient and faster. And of course, it gives us the internal perspective of acting both as an attacker as well as the internal auditor and just like seeing more things. And to give you like a small weird example that we once saw many years ago in, in an application where we got access to the sources. We found out, for example, that in that application, the developers had the idea that certain characters in passwords actually mean bad luck. So they decided to strip out certain numbers because those were the unlucky numbers and they replaced those numbers with lucky numbers, thereby effectively destroying the entropy of the password quite significantly. And this is stuff that you just can't find out when you do like a black box assessment because you don't know these things. You only see them when you have a look at the sources and say, what is that thing? You're like, how does that make any sense? And can we somehow abuse this to do something bad with it? And to finalize on that, like a source code assessment also puts you into the possibility or gives you the possibility to say, maybe there is something that only someone with internal knowledge could find out. And if they ever leave the company, maybe they still have this in the code base and maybe they're still going to use this as an attack later on. Hopefully not. But that is also something that can be figured out with a crystal box or a white box assessment. So it gives you more depth. It changes your roles a little bit, expands you from attacker to auditor, and just has it be more efficient. Th thank you both for the very excellent explanation of what a white box audit is. And I'm curious, though, because a lot of companies, especially startups, they just want to check the box and say, yes, we've done pen testing or we've done vulnerability assessment. And there are other certifications out there, ISO and things like that. And when you're going out in the RFP market, a lot of times they'll say, hey, are you ISO 27001 certified, et cetera? Or are you SOC 2 compliant? Um, I want to come back to those in a second because I think those certifications play a role. And I'm curious how how they play a different role than what we're talking about today. But let's go back to the initial engagement. Uh, Andrew, you know, what Mario just described sounds like incredibly comprehensive. It also sounds like it would be somewhat invasive and expensive and require a lot of resources. And just at a glance, were you concerned about that at all? What questions did you have? Because I'm sure when he described that, you're like, yeah, that's what we need. But <laughs> so what, what were your thoughts and what questions did you ask? So there's multiple answers to that. So we, it wasn't cheap and it was an investment in terms of money and in terms of time. So I think 
I think 86 person days was how long the audit lasted. So we it was divided into multiple work streams. It was a big investment for Real VNC. We're not a huge company, but we got a number of things out of it. Whilst the report, the report was okay and there weren't any critical vulnerabilities and there were three high vulnerabilities. And one of the things I would like to add why working with Cure53 was great was we proposed some fixes and Cure53 as part of the engagement actually verified the fixes, which was super valuable for us because some of them were a little bit gnarly, but they can be quite complicated, quite complicated issues. And having an external pair of eyes saying, not only finding a, so that, you know, let's use the word vulnerability. They're not always easily exploitable, but there might be a vulnerability there. Having the ability for, for us, to then have Cure 53 not only find it, but then say, yeah, that fix you proposed would fix it. And just confirmation of that, that was super valuable. So whilst it was expensive, we got that out of it. And we also got some pointers from Cure 53 on how we can improve our software development process. So things like use more fuzzing, like certain ways we build binaries to include certain certain flags like address sanitizer and stuff like that that were fairly technical but they helped us actually improve our software development life cycle as well yeah so it was a big investment but we got a lot out of it so in terms of when we went to cure 53 and said hey we want to you we want you to audit everything and i don't know mario if you agree for us it was it seemed like quite a big engagement because it wasn't just a web app, it wasn't just a client binary, it was a server, a client, mobile apps, web portal, it was multiple different components. And what Cure 53 did, which is very useful, is they said, okay, we're going to break this down into four work streams. Here's what the what your developers, how much a rough estimate on how much time your developers would need to spend with Cure 53 as we're going through the audit. So we knew pretty much up front not only the financial investment, but the time investment of our engineering team as well. And Cure53 were very good in that they did propose the four different work streams. So not all the developers would be needed all the time. So the way the work streams actually were aligned with our engineering team. So for example, one of the work streams was about our web portal, right? So the developers that would be needed there with the web team, the mobile apps was another work stream. So that would be the mobile team. So it actually worked quite well in terms of being efficient. So the developers were only needed to be on hand to answer any questions or to explain. Developers do weird things sometimes and just explain why they've done things a certain way and what the thinking was to Cure 53. And yeah, so I think breaking it down like that really helped us. So we knew the time investment and the cost investment. And ultimately it wasn't cheap, but as I said, we got two things out of it. And of course, we can now say to customers, hey, and we actually published a summary of the report. So we couldn't publish the whole Cure 53 report because it contained code extracts that we didn't necessarily want in public domain, but we published a summary report. Um, and we wanted to be with a tra as transparent as we could, which meant that when customers ask us, is your software secure, prove it, we can now give some kind of evidence that it's not just us saying it's secure, but we've had an external organization verify that. Sure. And I really like the fact that you keep using the word investment because oftentimes people look at these tests, again, they need to check that box and it's an expense. Just get it done. Mm -hmm. It's a, It takes time, resources, money, all that. But you keep saying investment because one, 
it does make your operation, your platform, your product more secure, but it, ultimately it helps you sell more. Exactly. That's yeah. yeah. And I just like any other sales or marketing investment that helps you sell more in certain domains, certain sectors, having a certain certification, for example, is a must have. And in some of the spaces that I work, for example, SOC 2 is a must have. And if you want to get past the gatekeepers that you need to have that or some sort of very convincing alternative. Okay. Mario, over to you. When you're having that same conversation, you're sitting on the other side of the table from Andrew or other customers like him, and they have that concern. I'm sure you have your pitch to talk about the investment and all that, but I'd just like to hear it from you. If I said to you, hey man, this looks pretty expensive. I've got a pen tester from, from online, from CrowdSpring or Upwork or one of these platforms, and they'll give me a pen test certification for five grand. How do you justify the Delta on that? To be quite honest, I'm not really like a big friend of pitching these kind of things because usually it is my role to talk to the client for the first time and just find out what do they really want? What are they actually after? What is the motivation for them reaching out to us, asking for a pen test of whatever, whatever methodology. And then based on that, I can quite quickly see where the whole operation is going. When I talked with Real VNC, it was quite clear from the beginning on them, A, this is going to be a big beast. And B, they are seriously after finding out about their security levels and it's not like a rubber stamp exercise. But we also have those, of course. And I don't want to make them sound bad because it's better than nothing. I know that lots of our clients actually come to us because of the fact that they have to, because someone else says, look, you have to have a pen test. If you don't have a pen test that you can prove you're not going to get this particular certification or we're not going to buy or rent or otherwise use your product. We're not going to integrate your API. We're just not going to work with you. So they have to do this. It's like going to the dentist. You just have to do this. You barely enjoy this, but you still have to do it at some point. And then needless to say, this can be abused. As a company or as a vendor, you can go ahead and say, of course, yep, we are going to do the whole thing and we're going to scan you up and down. We're not going to do any manual testing, but that's not really required by the certification. So let's just go and run burp and wait a couple of days. Then we're going to send you the report with a couple of template changes. And this would be like 5k. That exists as well, but that doesn't give you anything in the long run. And strategically, that doesn't help you at all because as a client, you always go by the risk that your customers, your clients will eventually notice. They will ask for the report. They will ask for the summary. They will see, was that an actual test or was that like a rubber stamp thing? And then that might actually backfire. And as mentioned, that is why I don't really pitch these kind of things because it's quite clear where people are coming from and what the motivation is for people. And then the question is like, how do you get that into the right direction? How are you going to be able to give people strong confidence that they receive value with the service that we're doing that is going beyond what they actually initially expected. And that can only be proven by working together and by looking at the application, by experiencing the test together, by doing all the setup, like a thorough scoping as we did with real VNC. I'm not sure how many weeks we actually spent on scoping. It was a lot of time, but it was worth it because it was fully clear what you're after, who's going to be needed in the chat, how many person days are going to be needed per work section, all those things. And what came out was actually a good fit. And then you have the test experience, which is like hanging out on Slack or any other software to chat with the development team, ask questions, give feedbacks, do live reports, report the findings. And then again, at some point, no matter where you came from as a customer, as a client, you might realize, hey, independently of us having to do this, this really gives us value because that bug that was there in the database handler 
we wouldn't have found it ourselves. Bug Bounty might not have found it. The scans with Burp might not have found it, although it's pretty good. But uh, that actually gives us something that otherwise would have been invisible and would have been lurking around in our code base and amassing technical debt. And then you realize, hey, this whole thing makes sense. It's just like going to the dentist and realizing, oh, had I not done this, I would have had some kind of infection in my mouth and that would have sucked even more. That's, I think, the main goal here, just like starting with the makes sense and then over the course of the journey, just like making sure that you really can add more value than expected. And then you arrive at something that really helps shaping up the security culture and the realization that this is really needed and actually gets you forward. And then we're pretty much back at the term investment and the full realization that this is really an investment and helps in the long run. One thing, one thing I would just like to say, Mark, you know, when we're talking about the initial engagement, when we went into engaging with Cure53, this was the first time we'd had this kind of code audit done. And we honestly didn't know. We thought we were secure. We believed we had good processes. We believed we were writing good code. But until you go, until any software vendor goes through a process like this, you really don't know because often your engineering teams, your QAs, not maliciously, but they have, they maybe don't have the experience and the knowledge of enough to be able to truly know that the code they're writing is secure. And yes, there are lots of automated tests you can do, but ultimately nothing beats going through the code with a fine tooth comb with someone that understands C plus or go or whatever, and actually going through the code and seeing things. Yeah. So we didn't know what we didn't know what we were letting ourselves in for, honestly. And the fact that the report, let's not sugarcoat it. It wasn't perfect report. We didn't have any critical vulnerabilities. We had three highs. And Mario, I don't know if Mario remembers, but I think we we fixed them really quickly and we took away a lot of lessons from, okay, how did that happen? And we fixed them, Cure53 verified them. And I think just from the size of the code base they did audit, I think we were quite happy that it wasn't worse, if that makes sense. Totally. Hey, I, everything you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I like the analogy of going to the dentist. It's very timely for me because I spent basically <laughs> half a day at the dentist yesterday taking care of business, but also doing some, you know, proactive checking and finding that, yes, there's some more work to do there, but it's ignorance is bliss. But in the back of your mind, you're still, you still, you're never going to be feeling at ease until you have it checked out. So one thing is you have Mario's team come in, do a very good inspection. And now you can say, okay, yeah, not everything's perfect, but at least we know what we need to work on. And, and we can be relieved that there is nothing super critical. But let me ask you though, is this a one and done? Hey, we've done it, we have our report, and now we have this secure DevOps process in place. Or is this kind of something that you, like the dentist, you have to go back every six months or every year or something? So at the risk of getting a bit salesy, so Real VNC, I don't know if you know the background of the company, but basically we were the, we, we were founded by the people that developed the original VNC that's been around for years at the AT&T Research Lab in Cambridge in the 90s. So we were founded by that core team at the Cambridge Research Lab that then went on to start Real VNC. And so we invented the remote access industry or the graphical remote access industry, those VNC. And we made we've made a commitment. We security for VPN providers and remote access providers is existential. If you if your software has massive vulnerabilities, you're toast. We all know what happened with LastPass. There, there'll be in a lot of pain right now. We didn't want to ever be in that situation. 
So we made we we wanted to take a bit of thought leadership as the people that invented this beast remote access. We made a commitment at we were at InfoSec in Florida last year where I got stuck in a hurricane, which was fun. But we made a commitment that absolutely our code base is constantly evolving. So we want to, we put a challenge out to the remote access industry, which is right. We're going to do this every year. You should be asking your vendors to prove their security as well. So for us, the code base never stands still. We've started talking to Cure 53 again about doing another audit this year. Now, obviously the investment from a monetary point of view hopefully will be less because they've already audited a lot of the code. So it should only be deltas from what's changed. So the scope of the exercise should be reduced. For example, all of our the backend hosted services haven't really changed. So the, we're working with Mario at the moment on what the scoping of, of the audit is to be meaningful. But yeah, we're the code, code never stands still. So we think that we need to do it on an annual basis, to be honest. Yeah, or that it depends, of course, what kind of intervals you want to go for on, for example, how many changes there are actually to the code base, how many new features are going to be added. And it also depends on what kind of viewpoint you want to have. So in this particular situation, it makes perfect sense to say, hey, let's do like a Delta audit. Let's just like focus on the things that have been added that have been removed, check how they have influence on the existing code base, see if any new features have been added that might pose additional risks or might leak information or enable injections and those kind of things. And then needless to say, you spend fewer days because in the initial assessment, you first need to find your way around and get to know everything. And then you can say, we're going to use at least partly the same team to look at the same scope, but focus on the changes that have been done over time. Sometimes that makes sense. There's also situations where you want to say, maybe it makes sense to look at the whole thing again from a holistic standpoint, because either clients or customers demand that or the changes have been like comprehensive and meaningful for the rest of the platform that you can't really judge the delta alone but you have to understand what else has been affected and then you probably are going to do are going to be doing like another full test again but that of course also depends on the magnitude and the size of the test like here we have 86 person days you're not going to do another test with 86 person days the year after because that economically and also realistically doesn't make any form of sense but if you look at a web application that is dramatically changing over time, you could say we're going to look at the web application this year for 15 person days. And the next year we learned that you now have new API endpoints and an entirely different model of how you handle your users and your sessions and your job tokens. So let's go at it again with 15 days or maybe even 20 because there's just like simply more. So that is also something that needs to be talked about, discussed with the clients. And then at some point you reach an agreement and you're like, ah, that actually makes sense. Let's go this particular path. Okay, so again, that makes a lot of sense. You do a significant investment of time and resources up front, understand what your situation is, fix any issues, and then just go in for a regular checkup. What about alternative methods to achieve similar outcomes in terms of if we look at, say, hey, this is a customer requirement. They want to see that our platform is secure. There are different ISO certifications, SOC 2. There's, if we talk specifically about software, there's ISO that governs the process. Doesn't actually, I don't think it actually looks at the code, but you also have alternatives like a PBOM or SBOM. Where do those fit into the picture? And just before I finish this out, what about, there are some tools, some SaaS tools right now that kind of will audit code as you deploy it or develop it to spot any potential known vulnerabilities. What are your thoughts on on? So I'll go first on it if it's okay. So in terms of ISO 27001, which you mentioned, so what I did 
in September, August, September 2021, was put together six security initiatives for Real VNC. One of them was a white box code audit. We've done that. The another one of them was ISO 27001 certification, where we're probably about 60 or 70% of the way there. ISO 27001 is important for me because our code can be secure, but us as an organization, there are some vectors, for example, where if we, in terms of information, leakage information disclosure, the bigger IT piece needs to be taken into account. We're all very aware that people are your weakest link, the lady on reception getting targeted or the girlfriend of someone who is one of our engineers. There are lots of vectors that don't necessarily relate to the code audit, right? So it's about information security and we're, <clears throat> we don't do things by half. So our ISO, the scope of our ISO 27001 certification program is the entire organization, including our software engineering teams, including our infrastructure, the entire business. And there are good reasons why we're doing that. And, and the biggest one from talking to ISO 27001 specialists is if you don't do the entire organization, you need to have a lot of measures in place to segregate, for example, the engineering team from the HR team, from the finance team. You need to have a lot of barriers in place to mean that the part of the organization that is in scope for 27,001 isn't polluted by the part that isn't. So we're doing we're doing the entire organization and that's really about information security. So it's having a register of risks, managing, and it's basically risk management. It's managing those risks, understanding what the, what the value of an asset, and it could be a system, it could be data, the value of that asset to the organization, and then how you mitigate it, how you're identifying and managing the risks and mitigating the risks on those different assets. And I think it's also nicely getting us back to the idea of like different roles or different threat actors. Because if you're, for example, talking about all the certifications, then your threat actor is usually wearing a suit. Or if you're talking about other comparable certifications, then the regulators might be in charge here and they might shut you down because you're doing something that is like not okay. Like also thinking about data protection and managing the information flow inside the company and so on. Then you might be thinking about uh, training your employees to be more resilient against phishing attacks and against trickery and against being made drunk in a bar and then letting out some company secrets, which is also super important, but yet another role of an attacker coming into play and uh, firing their assets against you. Then you have the role that you would assume as the internal auditor and at the same time, the external attacker with a code audit, the external attacker with a Raybox test and so on. Effectively, as you said before, you need to think about what kind of assets does my organization have? What kind of threat actors are about? And what can I do to be as well protected as I can against those? And even if something happens, can I at least say, look, I mean, we still got a compromise and there was still some kind of thing that was overlooked, but we did our best. Like we tried hard and this is what we can show you to prove that we did. And at least then you might not get a short storm on Twitter. So it might just effectively basically result in you being able to say we did what we could, but it was not enough. Let's ramp this up a little bit. But in the end, it all comes down to those roles and to those different actors, I believe, and the priorities you want to assign to them to make sure that you're as safe as can be. Are you going to be super secure at any point against everything? Absolutely not. But as secure, as safe as can be, that's a state that can be reached at some point. And I think okay. it's about, sorry, Mark, I think it's about understanding where you have risk and doing and 
you might have an asset that is highly risky, but of little value to the business. So it's about where you're spending your resources because we all have limited resources. So the risk management framework part of ISO 27001, for example, helps you identify what the importance of this asset is to the business and how much time and effort do we need to spend mitigating those risks. Okay, it makes a lot of sense. I'm just curious, from your customers, Andrew, how what's the priority for them in terms of being able to purchase your software? Is that this type of test, or do they want to see SBOM or PBOM or ISO, or is it all of the above? One of the challenges with an organization like Real VNC is that our customer base is so diverse. We have everyone from a guy, so we have a free offering, so a guy supporting his aged parents up to government organizations, right? They all have different set of requirements. As a small organization or a guy who's providing support to a couple of people, security, ease of use is probably more important to him than security. He, there is a certain level of assumption that things are secure, but I think they, they're not particularly sophisticated from a security awareness point of view. Whereas if you're talking to a military organization, security is absolutely paramount and this kind of report is important. Now, interestingly, you mentioned bills and materials. So, so one of the other security initiatives that I brought in was we need to understand, and it's something that Cure53 looked at as well, what are our dependencies? What dependent, what libraries are we using? What open source projects are we using as part of our software? How do we know there aren't gaping vulnerabilities in it? We've seen what happens with some of the issues with NPM, for example, where there are all kinds of horrible things happening there. And you know, it's very easy for a developer to install a library that is riddled with issues or whatever. You need to know about that. So we brought in software composition analysis tooling that does two things for us. One is it looks at license risk. So if we're using GPL software, what's the implications of that? Do we, does it mean we need to open, because our software is commercial software, do we need to open source our software and make it and license that under the GPL because some dependent library we're using says we have to? Or, so license risk is one thing. And the second thing is, are there vulnerabilities in in the software, in the libraries and the dependencies we're using? Um, and how do we mitigate those? And it will tell us, upgrade to this version to get rid of, it will tell us the CVEs, it will tell us if we're using an old version. It, and it's, that's quite useful for us as well. Excellent. Mario, what does it take to be a pen tester to do red teaming, white box audits. If you're looking at hiring somebody, what characteristics are you looking for? That's a very interesting question. And the answer might surprise you. No, so traditionally what we look after is talent, but talent is extremely hard to identify. Of course, you could now say, if there is a person applying for a role in your team, all you need to do is look at the certifications. And if that person has the sufficient set of certifications, you can be sure that that person is absolutely suitable for your team and going to be a fantastic penetration tester or code editor. But I think that this is garbage. It doesn't work like this. This is not what reality shows us. Reality shows us that you need talent and a deep technical understanding and also a certain level of 
I don't want to sound too kitschy, but you need to be hungry for finding bugs and hungry for doing this no matter what, and sometimes working through the whole night. And I only look back at my own early days in this business. And that was actually the thing. I did it because I loved it, because I really genuinely liked it. I, for example, did tons of cross-site scripting research in the olden days when everybody was laughing about cross-site scripting, but I liked it so much that I just needed to wait until it became relevant, which I never knew would happen, but it did. So you have to be motivated. You have to be talented. And that is is, in my opinion, the most important aspect. Some of my testers don't have certificates. Others do if they choose to do. Some of my testers do not have an academic degree because they decided not to get one and that is perfectly fine. Others have a PhD. One has two master degrees and we have one who actually has two PhDs, which is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> that is, a, I think there was just a material. collective laugh from Andrew and I, right? <laughs> oh my God, the mind boggles. And I hope neither one of you have two PhDs because no. I don't want to be laughing at you. The point is like all of these certifications, all of those degrees or the lack thereof were never like a criteria for being part of the team or not being part of the team. Like other things were, and one of them was, for example, to try out the chemistry and to really find out is that person a good fit for the team? Is there any kind of expertise or at least the desire to gain one? And then we can move forward as someone who is an applicant. Um, what we usually do is not having an interview because interviews are garbage, at least an hour. <laughs> no, <I'm sorry. laughs> what we also don't do is like this kind of classic day of someone coming to the company and having to write some kind of weird array sorting algorithm. That's just, nah, that doesn't help us. What we do is effectively test tests. Uh, and a test means that you have an initial conversation with one of the people from our operations team, not technical in nature, just like to see if there's a good chemistry over the call. And usually you can tell quite quickly. And then you're going to be ND8 and you're going to be DP8 and you're effectively doing one test with us. That means you're going to join us for one full penetration test. And during that test, you act as if you were one of us for one week or maybe even two weeks. Needless to say, you're going to get paid for that. So we're not milking the market by just like doing people, having people do test tests all the time, but you're going to get paid full rates for this or sometimes not full rates, but depending on your performance, you're definitely going to get something that is like worth the time. And then after those one or two weeks, we actually do know whether that person is a good fit. It can then still occur that it turns out that the fit wasn't that great. And then we have to think about alternatives, but you have to work with people. You have to see how they actually perform, how passionate they are about the whole thing. And then you quickly know whether the person is a good fit or not. Personal recommendations also come into mind. So lots of the people from my team who have been with me for like the past 10 years and more, they actually recommended people said, Hey, I know this person and she's awesome. You should totally hire her. And then we do that. Other people just reach out and says, hey, do you have a slot for me? We, I would really like to join your team. And then it's back to the test. We try it out. We see if it works. And if it does work, then there's most certainly a possibility to pop on board and become one of us. Awesome. I think that's some just amazing advice. In fact, I'm going to highlight that in the show notes or put it on the website and then link to the uh, the podcast here. A Andrew, what advice would you give for companies like yourself who are in the market looking for somebody like Cure53 and they've got the same need that you have and you're saying, hey, here's how you identify a, a vendor that you can trust. So I think what was very clear early on us approaching Cure53 and starting to talk to Mario was culture fit is super important. Can we work together? And that is intangible, but very important. We're a business. We've got a lot of 
all the developers, for example, that are involved have got a lot of pressures. If there's not going to be chemistry there and it's going to be a miserable experience, they're not going to engage with Cure 53 and Cure 53 is going to find it hard to get answers. And Kemp, I wouldn't underestimate the value of kind of organizational fit. It's not a love affair, but chemistry to a certain extent. Can you guys work together? And that's very important. Obviously, technical, we're, we're assuming we went with Cure 53 because all you've got to do is read some of the reports that they've published. Yeah, clearly, they know what they're doing, but ab above and beyond technical skill. And I think when we were scoping the exercise with Cure 53, our, because we were doing so many different components of our service, there was C plus, there was I there was Objective C, there was Kotlin, there was, I don't know, Go and Java, and there was a whole lot of different components. So it's important that, you know, that is exposed early. So that if you're talking to a company that, you know, if they don't know if they can't do C plus, then we'd have had to say, sorry, we love you guys, but we wanted everything under one supplier because then you get better synergies and they can work with us more effectively is what we found, what everything under one roof. So technical competence is important, but ultimately flexibility and, and can you work with these guys for a period of two months, three months, because they're having to come in completely cold and come up to speed in order for them and us to get value out of the engagement, I'd say. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense and actually kind of mirrors some of the advice or process that Mario was alluding to in terms of bringing somebody on board his team is do they have the competency and is it a good cultural or team fit? Hey, it makes a ton of sense. If our listeners wanted to either follow you or learn more about your respective organizations, which is the best way to do that? I don't really do social media, so I'd say go to www. You, you know this is a podcast, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, okay. I, I don't do Twitter or Facebook. Okay, okay. So, sorry. Go to our website, www.realvnc.com, is the best place to look at what we're doing. Okay, awesome. Mario? Yeah, we also don't really do lots of marketing. Actually, we don't do any marketing whatsoever. So, we have a Twitter, but we very low print. We frequently use it for just like tweets about maybe a new release of DOM Purify, one of our libraries, or another release of a new pen test report that is public. Um, and that's pretty much all that we have. We have a website, but it looks terrible uh, and it's like ancient and the design is gruesome, but that <laughs> has pretty much all the content. So the content is the Pentest reports because we can always say, look, there is a website and on that website, you find a bunch of PDFs. And if you're interested in the work or at least the deliverables of our work, then go to that website and find your way through all those panels and links and old school torrent website looking optics and uh, have a look at the reports that are ugly as well, but they have content and that is what matters in the end. I think that is the best way to move forward and find out what is there and what kind of interesting information you might be able to find out about the way we work and what we actually deliver at the end of the day. Excellent. Uh, you are the anti-salesperson. No, I mean, it's, it's what I've found is if you're a deep subject matter expert, most customers, they, they prefer that. They just want, they want to know that you know what you need to know and you have the experience to deliver. So that's awesome. Hey, gentlemen, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I wish we could talk more because I would really like at some point to get into the nitty gritty of what what are the actual steps of a white box audit and red teaming? And maybe we can set something up a few months down the road. But thank you so much for your time today. Cool. Sounds good to be. Thank you very much. Great to speak to you. 
Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. 